Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Terry Farley, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Thanks for joining us streaming or downloading, but most importantly listening. You should know the drill by now, but if it's your first time tuning in, where have you been? We at House Culture are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can get your daily fix of all things House Culture on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet. But as you can see, with this podcast, we've already built up a hefty back catalogue of interviews with iconic characters from the scene. We've all been happy to sit down for a candid chat to tell us how this thing called house music has shaped their life. In this episode, we chat with Terry Farley, one of the founding fathers of the UK house music scene. As you'll hear in this podcast, we'll discover that Terry has always had a passion for collecting records and DJing. I was a right pest, you know, I would go up to DJs and ask them, what's this? I've got to write it down and I've got to have this record. Then I would go and pester the people in Slough Record Centre and then I would pester them. Nothing's changed really, on that front. How the boy's own fanzine he helped found became a guide to those enjoying the birth of UK house culture. But with boy's own, it didn't matter. We were writing, from our point of view, what we liked, only about what we liked and it kind of resonated with with a core audience and we were very lucky that when Acid House blew up we were in the right place at the right time to write about it straight away. What those original boys own parties were like back in the day. The police turned up, I remember the police turning up about nine o'clock and they walked down the path and there's two, three hundred people dancing on roofs of the barn and laying all over, you know, gouging out all over the lawns. As well as how much he loves being a DJ and building a set. I like mixing records, I like playing records from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, this week, all in the same set. You know, I like playing Teddy Pendergrass next to a record by Eats Everything. And for me, the only link is that I like them. 
We talk about all of that and much, much more. So settle in, as this is another long one, but also worth it. This is Terry Farley. House Culture. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the House Culture podcast, and thanks for sitting down with us today. You've been in and around the house music scene since it first blew up, but what we'd like to do is go back to before that and find out, growing up, where and how did you first discover music that you loved? I mean, the first music that I that I loved was dance music. My mum was very much, uh, you know, 60s mod girl, uh, and we used to have a lot of house parties in, in where I lived, in North Kensington, and uh, Tamil Motown and, you know, four to the floor... Detroit and Chicago music was was what my mum and my uncles and everyone liked dancing to. So I suppose it kind of got ingrained to me. Uh, The people next door, um, we had two families next door. We had an Irish family and a West Indian family. And the West Indian guy, he he when I I remember when he first turned up, um, he had a, a Zephyr, which was kind of like an English version of an American car. It had a kind of wings on the back you know like a like a very poor version of a Cadillac and he had leopard skin seats and uh, we thought it was well I thought it was amazing you know and he played reggae very very loudly uh, which annoyed my dad very much <laughs> um, which made me think this is great <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I'm, I'm, I can now see ways of um, uh, manipulating situations so um yeah, music was was kind of everything really. Music and football and clothes. We never had, that. That was it. You didn't really have much more. Uh, nowadays, kids have you know my children have got every got everything they can possibly want to get involved with. And I think when you have discussions nowadays with people nowadays with people, and they say acid house was like the last youth culture, uh, and they're probably correct because. Uh, Kids nowadays are not defined by youth culture anymore. Um, they're defined by technology, and technology opens up places for them to go, interact, meet people, and do what they want in the same way as we went to underground clubs and, and warehouse parties. So probably Acid House was the last. My first one was me wanting to be a skinhead. This was when I was about 10. Proper skinheads, I might, might say, not not the... Uh, nasty racist bonehead variety that come a decade later but was unable to uh, afford any of the clothes so I kind of walked around looking rather kind of second rate <laughs> in toughs I remember I had a pair of tough boots instead of Dr Martin's when I was about 10 and they were like a workman's boot a bit like a kind of a red wing boot but not not as not as expensive and on the bottom, they would have um, like little indents of animals' prints, paw prints. So they would have like tiger, lion, leopard. And we were living in like North Kensington, Latin Road, and we were walking around <laughs> looking out for lion prints. <laughs> uh, and I had a pair of jeans that were kind of like not Levi's, but uh, w- which were known as Tesco bombers. Uh, anyone who wore shit jeans got called out as, you know, Tesco bombers. Uh, and I had those rolled up, and um, that was my kind of pretty poor, lame attempt at youth culture and um, getting into music, really, just listening to what was being played at my family's parties and through the through the 
through the walls. Through the walls. <laughs> yeah, the bass was everything. Yeah. So was it? Were you knocking on next door and saying? Uh, I, well, I wasn't. He was. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of, oh, can I? You know, what is this you're listening to? What? Who are the artists? Or did it just influence you just through the walls? Um, I can't. Re- I mean, this is this is when I was very young. So this yeah. would have been like, kind of. Before all that kind of reggae hit the charts, you know, the, the Bob and Marcia, Young Gifted in Black, and all stuff like that, and uh, the Israelites, Desmond Decker, it would have been before that. So I, I, I wouldn't have known what they were called, but it was just kind of, I knew that it was it was rebel music, and I knew it kind of, you know, it, it annoyed my dad, uh, which was always a plus thing. Um, and, uh, and I knew it just sounded like, uh, something, it was a bit, you know, it's a bit like when people say when they first heard an Acid House record in the right context as opposed to, you know, oh, what's that? If you, once you heard it in a club, well, you know, I, I knew when I could hear that, 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 that music coming through the wall that this was like new, this was, you know, something that maybe I should be involved in somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as you kind of Got old, got a bit older. What what scene did that lead to in terms of your musical taste? Well, well I mean, at school, we, you know, when I when I went to uh, comprehensive school, everyone was into the kind of there was there was an album called Tighten Up Volume Two that Trojan put out, and uh, it was it was it had all the, all the basic big reggae tracks of of the day on, and it also had a picture of a naked woman on um, with a uh, she was a blonde. You couldn't see that she was blonde, but she she was very tanned, looked kind of like Swedish, and she had her arms covering her breasts, and it was like, wow, look at this, this you know, really risque. So every kind of 13, 14-year-old boy had to have that album. Yeah. Um, and so when your mates come around, you could play that album and look at the cover, and, um, you know, we just all got into that. There was stuff like Return, Lee Perry, Return of the Django, uh, Pioneers, Long Shot, Kick the Bucket, Reggae, Reggae, I think that was by Dandy, Reggae in your Jeggae. And, it, you know, that music was kind of our music, our age group. That was our music. We were too young to go out. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't go into a club. It was, you know, you were too young to go to a club. You were too young to go to a pub. So that album and, and the stuff around that album was kind of like our introduction to, to music. Yeah, I suppose uh, in that era as well, if you if you wanted to hear that music and you couldn't go to a club or a pub or whatever, you would have to be around someone's house who had that actual physical. Yeah, also youth record. clubs. I yeah. mean, there was a lot, you know, back then. Sadly, nowadays, uh, when when people kind of deride, you know, older lack of youth clubs for for kids to go, and I, I think a lot of older people go, oh, you know, these kids, bad boys, you know, they're they're going to be out robbing people anyway. They, you know, bad bad kids don't go to youth clubs. Well, they they did. They did, and you know, and and youth, you know, we had a youth club on my estate, you know, and they had a boxing club, that five-side football, uh, and they would have a, a like a disco, you know, on a Friday where you know someone not that much older than us would play all the reggae records and and the soul records of the day, and you know, yeah, kid, it was somewhere for kids to go, and if you didn't have that to go to, you would just be hanging around the shops. Yeah. So um, I, I think you know in, in today's political climate i think you know youth clubs uh, would be a great thing to get behind again absolutely and the youth clubs that you were visiting back then were were there 
was it lots of dancing or were people, you know, was it like no, the school no, disco? No, at, no not yeah. at all, not at all. It was, you know, as I say, you know, it was, the, you know, very few boys would have danced. Mm. Boys would stand around the edge. Yeah. And the girls, all the kind of girls were dancing a line, you know, in their kind of uh, tonic Travera skirts and, and really nice shoes. And, and the boys would be terrified of them. Absolutely terrified of talking to him. But, you know, it's like then we had, as I say, we had five-a-side football, boxing, table tennis. You know, nowadays, you know, they could they could, they could, could do anything now. They could be, have, you could do it so kids could learn how to work Ableton. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, a cheap price, probably is the same price as what a five-a-side football pitch would cost you, you know. Yeah, yeah. and it's about giving people that inspiration, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and um, yeah, we I think we were quite lucky, you know, it, because uh, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't the greatest of area, but when you've got somewhere to to hang out and you know keep your nose clean, it's it's a good thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And didn't you at about age thirteen? Did you move out to Slough? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is where where we had a we moved we got moved to a, a place called Britwell, uh, an estate, a, geo, a Greater London Council estate. And we've kind of moved out uh, as part of slum clearance, but also as part of the kind of gentrification of of North Kensington. That, yeah. You know, was still going on now, and um, you know, the the tower that burnt down. You know, sadly, was at the bottom of my road, and a lot of people who were who were being moved out of the houses that we we lived in, you know, were getting moved down to that end of the road as well. So it's a kind of story that you know has been going on a very long time, decades. You know, people being moved out for political expediency. Mm. Uh, but anyway, we had a good boy, a good boys club on Brickwell that was was a, a, a place to kind of hang out, look at what older kids were wearing, you know, and, and talk about clothes, talk about records and talk about places that you were too young to go to and that you kind of, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to go there once, you know. Yeah. So what can you remember the first time you actually went into a club and heard this music, like you say, in the right environment? Um, oh, God, you know, the, once I left school, there was like a little soul scene going on in Slough that centred around uh, the back rooms of pubs. It seemed to be a kind of thing back then. There wasn't really kind of many discotheques. You had discotheques, you know, in, in the West End, and and then you had kind of chains, like the, there was a chain called the Bird's Nest, who had uh, clubs? They had one on the Kings Road. They had one in Fulham. They had one in they had one in Slough actually, which I was too young to go to. All, all over the south, and they would have like a um, a soul night, and the soul night was always on a shit night because they knew that the people coming weren't going to drink. Yeah. So they would never have it on a Saturday night. So it was either a Sunday or a Monday, and um, and then also there was the thing about black people not getting in clubs. Basically. I think they the, the soul clubs they had quotas, you know, where it's like Away. it's kind of like right, there's enough in already, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and we experienced that. I mean, not me personally, but my black mates we were going with, you know, we experienced that sort of stuff. Um, and I think the first time I really went, it would have been uh, a pub called the Dolphin, which was in Slough, and it was connected to. Slough football, Slough Ground Stadium, which is where, where also Slough Town played, and they did a Sunday night party uh, where there was a guy playing soul music, and this would have been like 1974, and the big records 
then were like stuff like BT Express, Do It Your Satisfied, James Brown, Sex Machine, which was quite an old record already by then. And then they would play stuff like George McRae, Hughes Corporation, uh, Bump Me Baby, Rock the Boat. And for the first time, kind of, you know, boys started doing little dances and at the end of the night they play a slow record. Normally, Eddie Holman, Hey There Lonely Girl, which was the kind of standard record. Then you would then go over and talk to the girls after ignoring them all night, go, all right, you know, do you want to dance? Yeah, all right. And then we started, you know, then you would get dig a little bit deeper into, you know, you'd go and buy, go down to, there was a really good record shop in Slough called Slough Record Centre that kind of people travelled to, d- DJs uh, from quite quite away. It was, you know, if you, if you wanted to buy import records from America, uh, you had to really go into London or Slough Record Centre would order them in for you. So... We started buying Blues and Soul magazine, looking at charts from some, you know, what, you know, Mark Roman at Crackers, you know, what's his number one, right? And we would go in there and ask for it. And they go, oh, no, we don't have it, but we can get you it. It'd take a week. And you go, yeah, yeah, I'll have, we'll have it next week. So we would, you know, we would go into Slough Record Centre and we would buy records. And there was a lot of stuff coming out of Miami at that time, which was uh, KC and the Sunshine Band, George McRae. Uh, there was a band called Miami who had a record called Party Freaks. That was a really big kind of record in Slough. And then there was a guy, uh, there was two guys in Slough, two Asian guys, one called Rafiq and his brother called John. I'm sure John wasn't his real name. And they started running coaches to a place called the California Ballroom in Dunstable where bands played. And it's, this, it's, it's torn, it's long gone. But it was this huge ballroom, probably held about 5,000 people standing up. And in the end, I mean, he was he was filling two or three, four coaches of kids just from our area to go to Dunstable to see the Fatback Band, Ohio Players, Royers, the wow. Blackbirds. You know, it, 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 all, it really, you know, within two years, it become quite, quite a kind of big fashion, actually, in Slough, uh, to the point where... You know, the, the, this grubby industrial town, working class town, actually got a really good scene. And, and there was a DJ uh, called Alan Sullivan who DJed at a club called Skindles, which was in Maidenhead, which was a short bus ride. And people from West London, from all over London, would, would come down to dance. And you had really good dancers there. And we also had the Safari Club in Windsor, which was in the Safari Park. Um, and you could go up. In there on, a, I think it was a Tuesday night, um, and there was this club, and and it, I mean these places kind of ended at one o'clock. You yeah. know, these are, these are not clubs as we know clubs. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but kids would get dressed up, kids would go there and come from all over the south of England, and um, you know it, it was it was quite a good place to grow up. Slough, once you had kind of created something for yourselves, we you know we we. And I say we, you know, there's probably like four or five hundred kids involved with, you know, DJs like Alan Sullivan and, and as I say, uh, Rafiq and his brother sort of like providing coaches. And once this scene was created, it, it, it was like a real haven. You know, you work all week doing really shit jobs and, and at weekends you go out, you've got this huge pool of friends who all look like you, dress like you, dance like you and, and got your... And it was very racially mixed as well, which was quite um, unique for Slough because at that time, you know, the the state I lived on was very white. 
there was an area in Slough which was very West Indian and there was another area that was very Asian and there wasn't really any interaction whatsoever. So that soul scene pulled in people from all corners. Amazing. Amazing. And when you were going to these events, you know, like you say, you were getting coaches to them, obviously massive with the names that you mentioned on the bill. Were people coming in from all over the country in in coaches? to? to, Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, you would go California ballroom. There would be people from coming down from Birmingham, from the Midlands, from places like Essex. And did you find there was there any animosity between people from different areas? Well, well, (laughs) um, sadly, and this is this is sadly, I have to say this sort of, you know, uh, Slough was was a rough town. And a lot of the kids who were going on the coaches and a lot, you know, were kind of quite territorial. Alan Sullivan and and, um, what he'd done as a DJ he managed to pull quite a lot of the different estates together and people, you know, come out to dance and, and forgot that, you know, yeah, we're from this estate and you're from that estate, which was a great thing. But it kind of, it didn't always work that well when when, <laughs> when, when they went, you know, free coach handed to, to the California ballroom. I, I think we actually got banned from taking <laughs> coaches there in the end. Really? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can remember it. Um, a friend of mine who's now departed, Gary Hazeman, he was the man who made that record, Acid. Yeah. And um, one of the first kind of people on a lot of the scenes in London. In fact, right back to where I'm talking to now, he was kind of like Slough's ace face for me, you know. We was we was at the California Ballroom and there was a small room at the top of the club called the Devil's Den and um, it was where the Luton was very close to Dunstable and it was like their little club so it, we were up there and he was a very good dancer and uh, the the kind of Luton top dancers pushed some girl in front of his face who was a very good dancer to kind of try and humiliate him you know rather than you know oh, rather than one of us take him and we're going to send one of our girls and I you know it didn't go so well and 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 I, you know, I, I would say that actually she she danced better than him on that <laughs> night. Uh, but the, by the time the word is spread around the club um, and Chinese whispers, it, the whispers were that oh, the Luton lot had kind of you know given Gary a slap or something like that. It was it, you know instead of like him just actually being beaten on the dance floor and burned off. By the time the Chinese whispers went round, it was that Gary had got got hit and they had took a liberty. And when by the time we got to the coaches, we could see there was like um, running battles going on between the coaches, between the Slough and and the Luton lot. Yeah, totally unavoidable and and, and very um, very sad way to end because I think people still went to California ballrooms, but we was no longer able to take coaches there. They just stopped us doing that. Yeah. So uh, yes, ter- it, things were very territorial <laughs> back then, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't great. It wasn't great at times, you know. Even you know, you when we went used to go to crackers on a Sunday night. You know, you could you could get ambushed by teddy boys at Tottenham Court Road for the wear, what you were wearing. No way. Um, so sometimes you would have to run to the string uh, to get the bus from where I lived, my, my estate. You sometimes to get the bus to the Slough station, you might have to sort of think about what you're wearing because the kick, the blokes who are drinking at the pub might sort of uh, oh, decide your trousers were too too tight at the bottom. And uh, 
stepping on you. You know, it, it's a strange times. It, it's a completely different world. I mean, you know, it, it seems a life uh, a lifetime away, to, or, or a different life. I know that people use that expression. It seems like a different lifetime, uh, and it does. And, and when I talk to my kids about that, my kids are in their 20s, they, they, they just look at me as if, what? I don't understand what and and you're like yeah but this is how it was and they think I'm making it up they think I'm I'm like you know Uncle Albert (laughs) taking war stories (laughs) brilliant Um, so you were buying you mentioned you were buying records and getting those imports and things like that what 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 in your mind was the end game in that was it just to own these things you were hearing or was there a a grand plan to become a DJ Yeah, yeah I mean the end game was to get the hottest record yeah. that week. You know, the, the end game was to go to the best clubs. And because we live so far out of town, sometimes, you know, we would go to Crackers on a, on a Sunday night, which I think was open from 8 till 1. The last train home was at half 11. And to get the last train home from Tottenham Court Road, we would have to get to Paddington. So we'd have to leave at half 10. So we would be travelling up to go to a club, literally when the doors open... And by the time it was full, we'd have to go. But I had to be there. Yeah. I had to be there. Back then, you know, the DJs played all night long. And what they would do, which was like really cle- I, I guess this is a monetary thing, but also it was very clever in the fact that uh, it, when you got in a club early, the DJ would play all the new records he's got that week. All the records, that he, you know, all his favourite new records. And then they would play records that were big records. Uh, in the club and then at the end they would play the best of the new records so if you got in there early you could kind of get yourself a good little education of of what you needed and you know I, I was a right pest you know I would go up to DJs ask them what's this what's th- right I've got to write it down and I've got to have this record and you know and then I'll then I'll go and pester the people in Slough Record Centre and then I would pester them and uh, nothing's changed really <laughs> on, on that front so yeah the end game the end game was just like next week this weekend you know when you're sort of 16 17 18 yeah. you can't even think about being 21 you can't you know 21 is like you it's the end of it it's all yeah. over yeah. so uh, there was no end game. There was no. I never had an end game of, of being a DJ. I ne- never ever. Even when I was I was DJing at the Wag, I was DJing for the Raid. Even when I even when I got booked to play Spectrum and, and and Trip, and I was earning more money that night than I was during the daytime for my job. There was there was not. I never thought this is what I'm going to do. This is just just what I did anyway. I I would buy them records anyway. I never yeah. went. I never ever bought records then. And I never, and I don't do it now. I never buy records just to play out. I've never bought a record that I've said to myself, "This will work." You know, I get things that I really like, and then I play them because I really like them. It's just that share, just sharing them is. is... Yeah, it's just sharing my taste in music. You know, I really miss the Friday Soho shopping culture. That was, you know, you'd get in there and you'd go into Black Market. You know, the guys there would know you and they would have a, they'd give you 10 records, listen to those. And then you go in another shop, they'd have to, oh, you need that. And then you'd see someone who saw in Black Market, you'd look at their bags and you'd say, no, no, I didn't like that. And they'd go, no, no, you really, yeah, you need to go back, right? So you'd go back and then you'd look at someone else's bag. Then you'd go across, you'd end up at Vinyl Junkies. Then you'd go down to Catch a Groove. And then and you could be there six, seven hours you know, kind of cross-pollinating your taste with other DJs who you know. But 
the one thing I used to really hate was when I used to go, no, I don't like that. And they go, yeah, no, no, nor do I. But that really work. And I used to think it's like going out and having a shit dinner because it fills you up. Do you know what I mean? You know, I don't like this food. I know, but it fills you up and it's, it does the job. It's, it's not really, you're not there to do a job. You're there to, you are there to do a job, but you're not there to do a job. You're there to kind of bring something to the table of yeah. yourself. Yeah, I, that's a that's the perfect way of putting it, I think, like you say, is it, just picking something up and saying and hearing it and being like, well, I don't really like it, but I know I could play it and it could get some sort of reaction or it might sound good on a system, but no, yeah. it's, it's something that you actually love. And that's a good a good kind of quality control to have, I think. I, I, I think I think it is. I think it, it I think it also is a barrier to where you end up. I think definitely because I, I, I know that there's DJs who have done better than me because they are more willing to play the game and they're more willing to play what the crowd want. But um, I think it probably helped me, my longevity, because I think people kind of, in the end, you know, you might not be the cool DJ this year, but when the music kind of comes back around and changes around, people start, oh yeah, you know, yeah, Terry always plays that stuff. You know, well, why don't we have we get him again? You know, so I think from a longevity point of view, I think it's a it's a really good thing to stick to your guns. Uh, from a uh, financial point of view, possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we're kind of jumping. I don't want to jump too far ahead at the moment, but um, I want to kind of talk about setting up Boyzone fanzine, and obviously. The whole idea these days and the way technology is of setting up kind of a, a printed publication all pretty much off your own back, written by yourselves. And, you know, what back then, what was the thinking and motivating factors about setting that up? Well, I, I, you know, like if, if we were talking to someone, you know, if we had a youth club now, a really good youth club, you know, we would we would be sitting around with a load of teenagers and we were saying how do you want to communicate you know you want what have you got to say you know what do you want to tell what do you want to have a moan about and and we'd probably be setting up you know a, like a blog or a video link or a or a youtube page you know podcast where, <laughs> podcast and um but then that was it fact the fanzine was the do-it-yourself way of having a voice without having money i mean it, you know you ha- you needed a little bit of money yeah uh, and you needed a little bit of a, a little bit of inspiration and, and an idea of let's do this because no one else is doing this. Uh, but it was pretty simple, really. You know, uh, you know, we had a little, we had our gang of friends. You know, the the, the Slough gang had kind of spread out, and it was, you know, people from Windsor were coming over, and you know, Johnny Rocker, Simon Eccles, Andy Weverell. You know, we were kind of drinking in the same pubs. Um, we were doing this, going into town together to like the Mud Club and places like the Wag and the Beat Route. So, you know, we chatted about doing it. And um, I, I was, <laughs> again, again, kind of, you know, this like little kind of arsey kid who goes up and asks for records and asks, you know, goes into shops, you know. I was always writing letters to magazines, The Face, When Saturday Comes, Football Magazine. I, I, can't, I kind of quite like, I quite like doing it. English was a thing at school that I really enjoyed doing, but my education was so poor that my my grammar and people who, who later on contributed and, and read Faith Fanzine will will um, will agree with this because, you know, my, my writing is really, really poor grammar-wise. But with Boys Own, it didn't matter. We were writing, from our point of view, what we liked, only about what we liked, 
And it kind of resonated with a core audience. And we were very lucky that when Acid House blew up, we were in the right place at the right time to to write about it straight away. Because I suppose it started off before that Acid House explosion. Yeah, we, had, we, 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 we were out for a couple of years. We were selling in kind of trendy clothes shops down the King's Road. American Classics, uh, there was a shoe shop called Robot. Uh, in Robot um, and Steve Mays and myself would take the fanzine to football uh, to Chelsea and we'd sell it to people there you know there's a bit got in a bit of trouble there a few times because the politics were certainly not what you know the politics the politics were really fucked up badly in the late 70s to mid 80s with people like the National Front and the British movement going to football. And um, Steve is very, very, very left-wing and uh, very pro-United Ireland. So we had um, Sinn Féin cartoons in our magazine, you know, and then we're selling them in a pub at Chelsea. And, you know, it didn't didn't go down very well sometimes. Uh, And I I do look back at it now and I do think, you know, what, what was you thinking, you know? But I look back on a lot of my life now and think, what was you thinking? <laughs> you know, how did, you, how, did, how did that not end badly for you? <laughs> um, and um, we were just there at the right time. And we, I was DJing at a club that travelled about called The Raid. And uh, Dave Little, who, who went on to do the boys' own illustrations and Spectrum illustrations, he was kind of hanging around with our gang and he did the flyers for the raid. Paul Oakenfold was A&R in for Def Jam and he was one of the regular DJs and so was Pete Tong. Um, so it was really me, me, Pete, Tong and Oki. And Oki said to me, I've just come back from Ibiza and he, he wouldn't believe it out there. This scene is amazing. I'm going to write an article. But he said, it's very druggy, so I'm not going to put my name to it. I'm in the music industry <laughs> and I'm one of the people in the music and it very very I mean the music industry then it was very it was a very strange place you know both Pete and Paul you know even though half the executives were coked up all day long you know you couldn't be seen to be given any kind of like acknowledgement to, to drugs in clubs so um, he wrote the article I got the heading spelt I spelt the heading wrong Balearic, uh, quite famously. That's a, uh, it's a difficult word. <laughs> yeah, well, with I'd it. never heard of it before. You know, people said I've been to I've been to Ibiza, uh, you know, in '82 for my one of my first ever holidays. But I know I'd Balearic. What do you mean? Yeah, it's called the Balearic Beats, is it? All right, okay. So I'm going to write it. Yeah, and there's this club in Bermondsey called Shumman, but Shum wasn't in Bermondsey. It was in it was in. But anyway, so let's think of something. You know, old Bermans, he goes Balearic. That's a great, that's, that's a great headline. And um, we were doing it all, literally, A4 paper, put on a piece of cardboard, and an Electroset from WH Smiths, rubbing the headlines out on Electroset, and then me writing out, yeah, here we go with my grammar, me writing out what I had written <laughs> to my mum, who got the woman at, uh, in her office to type it out, and then we'd stick the typeface. I'd cut a couple of pictures out of... A magazine, no, no idea of copyright or no care of copyright, and then we would take it to a, a friend of ours who was a printer called Johnny O, who would print it up with the big, you know, literally on those big printing presses. Wow! And then we go around, then we pick up a thousand copies back of the car and drop them round and throw them out. And amazing, yeah. amazing, and that just instantly found an audience. And- well, it instantly found a very small audience, which was basically people who were kind of going 
Wag Club and and the American classics. We 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 were lucky because uh, Johnny Rocker was working down the King's Road, so he knew everyone in all the clothes shops. So American classics stopped it, but also supported it by putting an advert in. So did Robot, and I think we only probably needed like three adverts, you know, uh, a run, three adverts a run to to fund it. Um, we charged fifty pence, I think. The magazine was 50 pence, but I think the shop took half of that and we took 25 pence, whatever the equivalent was. We, yeah, we were lucky. We had an audience, but it was only when Acid House broke that sort of suddenly people were looking around going, wow, Acid House, Acid House is great. Oh, look, Boys Own. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, Acid House, I, I, I need to wear Converse. I need to read Boys Own. I need to go to Shum. I need to grow my hair. I need to do this. So we were very lucky in that sense. But again, I think it's we were very honest in what we thought. We were as critical as we were uh, raving about things. We never took kind of adverts from people or anything we didn't like. Um, we got offered a deal with a distribution company to go and sell in WH Smiths for quite a lot of money, which we turned down. Again, what were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but no, probably what we were thinking actually was that if we had done that and we had carried on, you know, the magazine would have fizzled out. People would have gone, oh, yeah, but and I wouldn't be talking about it now. Yeah. So... I suppose the content in it would have maybe had to be watered down in a everything sense. Would have, yeah. Everything would have been watered down, you yeah. know, and, and, and no one would want to talk about it now. No one would want to buy a, a book with all the, all the fanzines in it once, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you look through that and it is such a brilliant commentary, running commentary on that scene exploding at the time yeah as it is i mean you know it, it is it is definitely how it was i think if you was to write a book now on the acid house scene just before and just after you'd pick all the good bits out you know and you would forget that there was loads of nights where the pills were rubbish there was loads of nights where there was no one selling drugs then that ruined everyone's night people were so like obsessed with you know the perfect california sunrise that that everything else was rubbish and then you know it had to be the right dj it was very very complicated i think it, it, yeah the, if you look at that you can still buy the book i think uh, if you went to boyzoneproductions.com i think it, it it reads as a a, a truthful commentary on on how things were at that time and so and you quickly kind of segued into obviously you've got the fanzine going on and you put on boys own events as well yeah we had done a few parties for we did a, our very first party boys own did was in a place just off the king's road called cafe d'artiste and i think it was me and andy weverall dj and andrew was playing kind of uh, electronic pop music and some mad heavier stuff a lot he, he was playing a lot of stuff kind of this is like maybe like eight, late eight, 86 early 87 he was playing a lot of stuff that would then be ado- get adopted by the Balearic scene a couple of you know a little bit later chris and cozy october love song and stuff like that he had a real you know i mean he had he's got a fantastic taste in music andrew whereas i i was a kind of black music luddite you know if it's not made by someone in chicago you know then i'm not playing it if it's not made by someone in in jamaica i'm not playing it you know uh, whereas he was much more open-minded and uh, all the better for it and uh, were those events obviously started off 
I'd imagine quite small scale down if it was down in the King's Road. Yeah, probably only about 150 people. Yeah. And we did a couple of parties. And then basically when the winter was over in 88, we said, we're right, we're going to do a party. We're going to do a boys' own party. And we asked Danny to DJ and he wouldn't because it mean he would have to leave, stop Shum for a night. And Simon Eccles had found a venue which was basically in Guildford. And we wanted to do an open air party like Ibiza. And no one had done an open air party. And Simon had found a guy who had, I think, a recording studio. And he had a big garden in a big house with an old barn in in one end of it. And we hired maybe six coaches and took possibly 300 people there. And it went on from 10 at night to about 10 in the morning. Boy George was there. At one point, the the guy who owned the house, you know, he ended up sort of sitting there in a garden. I, I don't know if he had he was off his nut on I don't know but he was there with Boy George and they were strumming along on the guitar and, and there was various other people there Paul, Paul Rutherford from Frankie What Goes to Hollywood was there nerdy wells of the West End scene and uh, the police turned up I remember the police turning up about nine o'clock and they walked down the path and there's two, three hundred people dancing on roofs of the barn and laying all over, you know, gouging out all over the lawns. And these two coppers come down and went, what's going on? And we're like, oh, it's a party from London. And, you know, what time are you going home? When, when are you going? Oh, about ten o'clock. Is that all right? And they went, yeah, yeah, OK. Uh, there's some empty bottles on in the drive. Can you get them picked up? Yeah, we'll do that. Thank you. And they just walked away and they were just looking and they just like, what, what is going on here? You know, because they could see there was no one was drinking. There was no one pissed. And they, it was like there was no concept of what was going on there other than there was loads of kind of grown up people, you know, late teens, early tw- 20s, early 30s, even there's people in their 30s there, eat up. And they had no concept of it, you know, and it was only like literally three months later when, you know, they were coming in and they were crashing parties and arresting people and, and hitting them with truncheons for doing exactly what we would we had done. And they had walked away really happy. We cleaned up the bottles. There was no neighbours to complain and everyone was happy. Obviously, the media had gotten hold of this and painted it as this kind of evil acid house Yeah, of course they thing. did. Yeah, yeah, of course they did. Of yeah. course they did. And, and Something and, must be done. It must be done. Also, you know, thing people never helped themselves. You know, we, there was there was two, three hundred of us. As I say, you know, there was a sound system and people were dancing, but it wasn't. You know, we're not talking about sunrise or biology sound system. And there's no one walking around openly selling drugs to 12, 13, 14 year old kids either. By the time the whole thing had took off, you know, the sound systems were so big. There were so many people, and organised crime had got itself well and truly you know foot in the door so it was very hard to kind of see where there was a way out yeah for for the police and for the promoters we made a conscious decision boys i never to sort of do a party more than about 700 people because we had the idea that you know like if you were a really you know top top level kind of drug dealing criminal people you'd go there's not enough of them to go you know to sort of muscle in on so we never got any problem from any dark forces so to speak uh because you know they probably just thought why go after you guys why yeah why 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 try and get in there to sell stuff because there's not enough money to be made we did get raided once we did a party in the in lambeth walk which was as central london as you could possibly get and just around the corner from a police station, but it was in a it was in a showroom uh, under under some arches. And Simon was seeing a girl, and I think her dad owned this kind of. And it was a 
showroom for classic cars. I think they took the cars out and we had a party in there and um, the police raided that and uh, people were arrested and as far as I know, they, they kept the money that they found. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> no way. So, I mean, a police raid at something like that, is it, the word goes out and the dance floor scatters. No, well, I'll tell you what, you know what happened was the party, that they come early, they said, what, you know, what are you doing and this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before we'd even opened, they said, you, you know, you can't, this is, we're shutting this down. And no, no, we've got, and I think we showed them that we, we had the right to be here. The owner of the property was happy for us to be here. And they said, well, you've got no license to sell alcohol, right? All this stuff, you're going to have to give this away. And we're like, right, okay. <laughs> so basically, I think instead of charging, because we never really charged a lot of money, most of the people coming were kind of our mates. And, you know, and if we had started charging a lot of money, they'd all wanted to blag. So it was better to have a decent price and everyone pays than a big price and everyone's trying to get in free. So I think we charged about 15 quid that night and it, all the drink was free. And they kept an eye on it. And as soon as everyone had left, and I thank God I'd gone, they then come through the door and arrested some of the other people in Boy Zone. I won't embarrass them by saying who. And uh, they were taken to court. And, and you know, I think, I think somehow prohibited from promoting any parties for a for a year or something like that it was something quite bizarre some sort of like you know is that a real thing is that an actual law did you just did you just make that up but i do i do think i think they uh yeah they trousered whatever they could <laughs> <laughs> amazing um and the whole boys own thing obviously it had these different strands in terms of fanzine events and you kind of went through and created your own record label you know that was all running alongside it i think was it the first release was it Boca juniors yeah pete i mean because because we had a close relationship with pete tong yeah he suggested we start a label and we're like oh okay yeah let's do that and you know why don't you make a record uh okay how do we make a record right we're going to put you in a studio oh okay so i think me Andrew. Andrew had a very talented engineer called Hugo Nicholson. Pete Heller come along. Pete had a little drum machine, an 808, I think it was, and he knew how to work it. Because we'd met Pete. Pete was playing, was a warm, the warm-up DJ at Shum, but he also played a guitar live over Danny's house records as well, which was kind of strange but very good yeah so there was a little gang of us who went along and we had a little record box and we decided that we were going to the main part of the record was going to be the piano line from jesus on the payroll by the thrashing doves but we didn't want to sample it we wanted to replay it and we were in this very expensive studio i think it, i think 800 pound a day that's 30 years ago right 800 pound a day uh we were on full catering so it meant we had breakfast lunch and dinner for all of us so <laughs> at one point we were there over a week at one point we'd just have mates of mates turning up oh can we have a bacon sandwich and you'd order a bacon sandwich and it'd get delivered so we had someone come in to play the the grand piano that made up the main part of the record andrew wrote i think he wrote all the lyrics in uh, some of them were stolen from a alistair crowley book apparently and then we got a girl coming who did some rap and then we put it out and I mean you know it, it's, a, it's a great record I really you know it's it's a really great record it's fantastically recorded I mean you know the, the engineer who Hugo really top of his game cut by a professional mastering studio cut really well onto a 12-inch single but sadly apart from you know a handful of clubs in London and you know one club in Manchester one club in Leeds one club in Nottingham 
one club in Edinburgh and one club in Glasgow. Didn't really sell, so I think we'd probably only sell a few thousand of that. That was kind of set the tone, really, for what we were doing. We were out of step with everyone else. You know, the rest of the country had gone really rave crazy and everyone was going mad for rave records and we had decided again what were we thinking part 20 we were going to like go all kind of slow and go opposite of what everyone else was doing and um, while these records do stand up and they do sound great now uh, they really didn't sell at the time really didn't sell at the time ahead of the curve massively well massively ahead of the curve and, and, then, and then what happened was two years later Paul asked me to Paul Oakenfold said I'm doing this remix for the Happy Mondays you know them and I went well look my mate Maisie he, I said he knows all that crew from from Salford and that because he's he's always up in Manx yeah I kind of we, we do know him yeah oh do you want to come in and kind of sit in with me and I I went in and we kind of I helped him with that and then I ended up doing a remix of well doing stuff with the farm and then doing other Happy Mondays tracks with Pete so kind of we we were too early with our own stuff if Boca Juniors had come out when the Happy Mondays in the farm had come out who knows yeah. you know we might might have been dancing around on top of the pops. Andrew might have been a different man than he is now. <laughs> he might be, you know, a sort of rich pop star sitting in Switzerland and I might not be here. I might have been far too busy to talk to you <laughs> <laughs> or far too uncool for you to want to talk to me. Um, so, we, yeah, the whole the whole boy's own thing was a label out of step with what was going on. Now, out of that, when they dropped us, we started Steve Hall, who was the label manager for Boys Own. We wanted an outlet to put the records that Pete and myself were making. And we wanted to make house records, We, you know, like New York house records we wanted to make, as opposed to the kind of the, the stuff that Boys Own had put out. So within about a year, Junior Boys Own was exactly in line with where we needed to be. Exactly. The right label at the right time, whereas Boys Own was the right, you know, the right label at the wrong time. You know, two years later, Junior Boys Own, you know, was was the right place at the right time. And the right people, we were very lucky that the right people championed the label. Uh, people like Frankie Knuckles and Junior Vasquez, David Morales, Louis Vega, uh, which gave us all, all the all the um, credence and we needed, really. Yeah, so... Obviously, it was a shame that you'd been dropped. Was it London Records, Boys yeah. Own were with? And then, so you set up Junior Boys Own, and obviously they're getting played by the right people, like you say. What was the the track that you were like, wow, this can really be something big that you'd released that people started playing, and you were like, okay. Um, well, the first record we did was, was Beating the Bones that come out on Junior Boys Own, and that record would, would have sounded really rubbish on Boys Own because it was like... What they're doing now, you know, I don't, I don't get, I don't get where this is going. But it sounded perfect for a junior boys' own, and um, we were, uh, we were in Labrock Grove, our office, and Labrock Grove had this kind of like there was a, a load of people called the uh, New Jersey Labrock Grove New Jersey Appreciation Society. And they used to go and follow Tony Humphreys around every time he come to England. And they would like, you know, be trying to, oh, everyone would get Kiss FM tapes from with Tony Humphreys' show. And they, people would sell them and they'd pass them around. So it was this big thing. And I remember hearing a tape and it had a, uh, a jingle for his show. And it was like Tony Humphreys putting the beats in your bones. And I said to Pete, we're going to make a record. Let's make a record beating your bones. And um, we made this record and we got this rapper in. And uh, we said, right, we want it to beat. And, you know, and it was like the beat, beat, beating your bones, bones, bones. And you just knew that, like, you know, all them American DJs were going to hear that. And even if they didn't go, oh, Tony Humphreys, they were going to, 
it was going to resonate. So, yeah, I mean, it was off to a good start. And, and sales-wise as well, you know, we were selling so much more than what we were selling. It was the right label for the right time and at the right level, I think. Yeah. And uh, you look at the break, the artist that kind of broke through on that label, you know, the, some guys called the Dust Brothers initially, uh, obviously became the Chemical Brothers. Is that the first release that came out? You guys put that out? The story is, and I, and, and I wasn't there, so I'm repeating this story, but the story was that Andrew had played in Manchester and a kid had come up to him with a, with a, 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 a tape, you know, a little cassette tape. And so this is a track we've made. Can you tell us what you think? And uh, he come into the junior boy's own office, Andrew, and, and played it to Steve, Steve Hall. And uh, they was like, wow, we really like this. And we can stick it out, yeah. And it was, you know, they were called the Dust Brothers. And then they did another one, Chemical Beats. But it turned out once... That, that did quite well, and it turned out it got back to America, and there was a, a hip-hop group called the Dust Brothers who then said, no, you can't call yourself the Dust Brothers. And because the second record had been called Chemical Beats, it was decided, I don't know who by, because I wasn't, I wasn't there at the, at the meeting, let's call it let's call it Chemical Brothers instead of the Dust Brothers, Yeah, which is a much better name than the Dust Brothers. <laughs> totally, anyway. yeah. Totally. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, obviously, a lot of tracks that came out on Junior Boy's Own, you know, even ones by yourself and Pete Heller, become huge kind of anthems that are absolute classics to be looked back on. Um... Are there any tracks that were released on that label or you kind of had a notion of hearing and, and wish that you'd had a that you'd done that and been like, oh, wow, I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd been involved with that one or 
Uh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I really loved all, all Ashley's records, Ashley Beadle stuff, you know, the Black Science Orchestra. And to this day, he needs to say, come and come sit in with me when we're going to do a Black Science record. You know, some some of that stuff is fantastic, you know, and, and I would have loved to have somehow been involved in that. Of course, Express 2. Again, I, I think we were very, very lucky in the fact that we were just, you know, Rocky and Diesel were two young kids who were coming to Boys Own parties and been part of Nicky Holloway special branch crew were starting to DJ and we asked them to DJ they actually DJed at that Lambeth walk party and that was the first time they played for us you know go and make a record oh we don't know what we're going to do I'll go and make a record you know and we, we said you've got to make a record for us you know they went in they made Music Express right we need a name or we think of a name Express 2 there's two of you and then but they never told me Ashley was involved so when it came out then it was like it should have been Express 3 <laughs> which doesn't sound as good as Express 2 no. either it's just like the Dust Brothers don't sound as good as the Chemical Brothers. So, oh, Bermondsey goes Balearic doesn't <laughs> quite work if it's spelt rightly as well. So there's a lot of kind of little accidents there. I think a lot of it is just, you know, you're hanging around with people who you like and, and people who, who do things because they really like them and because they're really enthusiastic and that comes off. You know, there wasn't that many records that early on that we kind of said, don't like it. Sorry, you know, find another label. Mm. You know, it was almost like everything that was coming to us was coming to us from the right place and friends of ours. And we were lucky. I mean, we were lucky that the label, Junior Boys Own, people all around the country suddenly were, whereas a couple of years before, whereas people were like, no, we're into this music, we're into rave, that's rubbish, we don't really like that. Suddenly, out the, the stuff we were putting out was exactly what people wanted and and what people wanted almost everywhere. You know, there was no, there's no kind of genius behind it. One minute you're unlucky, next minute you're lucky, next minute you've got spelling wrong or you've got <laughs> the name wrong, but it works. It, you know, I think it's, it's, it just goes back to the thing of just trying to be true to what you, you know, yes, I like these records, you know, um, and we're going to put it out because we really like this record. Yeah. It was kind of a new industry almost, this movement. It's a completely yeah, new industry. There was no you rule know, book to it. Completely. You know, when I said to my wife, you know, I, well, she weren't my wife at the time, which ain't my wife now, but <laughs> when I said, let's start again. When I said to my partner, I was going to give up work. This is like autumn of 88. I said, look, you know, I'm going to give up work because I'm earning enough money now as a DJ and I've got to, you know, I'm going to be going away and I'm going to be going away at weekends. You know, she said, all right, I, you know, I'll agree on this. We'll give it a year. You've got a year, you know, to try and kind of prove there's a living here for you. And, you know, a year seemed so far ahead. Whereas now, if you start a label now, you know, you might be saying, right, we won't make any money for the first three years. But, you know, in five years' time... Maybe we can be doing a festival in Croatia and we can be doing a tour in South America. Whereas, you know, you know, we were living the moment, really. Yeah. yeah. It, so in terms of DJing and producing, what in your mind comes first? Are you, are you, do you feel yourself as a DJ first? Or yeah, I mean, I'm a first? DJ. That's yeah. what I am. You know, I'm, I am a DJ. I've, I've decided once I give up my daily, my weekly job, I was a DJ. I'm not an artist. You know, when they say, oh, uh, you know, where's your artist page? I said, don't have one. I'm a DJ. No, but you're an artist. No, I'm not an artist. I'm a DJ. 
I play other people's records or I play records that I'm involved in making. But I'm a DJ and I like being a DJ. I really enjoy it. I don't have any real love for being in a studio, I have to say. I think a lot of that might go back to the fact that you know, when we first started, Pete is very talented technically and he's very, very much a wizard on the computer. So he was like very hands-on in the studio and we had a really good engineer, a guy called Gary Wilkinson, who told us he had studied under Arthur Baker in New York. And I, I, I believe him. Um, he's a sca- he, was, he, is, he is a scouser and prone to exaggeration, but, as they all are, but he was very talented and knew exactly how to get that kick drum sounding like it's, it's going to sound great in a big club. So I was very much kind of like the ideas man here. You know, and I remember at the time saying to Pete, show me how to work this. Oh, no, we haven't, you know, we haven't got time. And I also, I did realise that, yes, I could learn to, to, to do this drum machine, but I probably wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not going to learn to be able to do it better than Pete in any sh- period of time. And, um, you know, we were working, we were doing like, uh, when we were doing our commercial remixes, you know, we were going in at 10 in the morning. And we were leaving it free in the morning because you, you'd be paid a certain amount of money and, and the studio would be like, you know, you've got two days in a studio and you would have to. So, you know, I, I could be driving back to Slough, you know, at four or five in the morning without having any sleep. And I kind of got a bit of studio aversion out of that. And I'm very much, I heard a story once that David Morales had three remixes going on once in New York in three different studios. And he was traveling in between each you know going this sounds great i tell you what why don't we get a trombone on this i'll be back later and then he goes set up one right this is great push the drums up let's do this why don't we get this singer in great and then he would go back and i thought that's brilliant i would love to have been that man because sitting uh 16 18 hours and back then of course everything's outboard so you know you've got wires going from there to there through a desk and and it it, it could take an hour to get you know a hi-hat sounding exactly how people wanted it whereas nowadays you know people have got plugins and and presets so i i don't have a great love of of being in the studio i don't think i'm no i know i'm not i'm not technically minded enough to enjoy the process i love arranging music i love going in and saying right yeah right we're going to do this how are we going to do this right this is going to happen and i like setting up stuff I think I would, I, would make, I would make a really good A&R man. I'd be really good, I think, at putting different people together to make records and, and you know, right, let's do this and, and ideas as opposed to the actual nuts and bolts of things. But, you know, I was very lucky, you know, that, that with Boys Own, you know, Simon Eccles was the, nu- the nuts and bolts party man. With Junior Boys Own, Steve Hall was the nuts and bolts running man. With Fire Island in Roach Motel, Pete Heller, very much the, the nuts and bolts man. So it, it allowed me to kind of, you know, just kind of come up with ideas and, and come up with stuff and do what, I don't know if it, I don't know if it, the word is do what I do best, but, you know, not just kind of gnaws too much up, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, isn't there a funny story about, um, obviously, Pete Heller, you know, you've done a lot of stuff together about him producing Big Love. Well, it's and... not so funny, actually. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> No, no, I mean, yeah, uh, my beloved Chelsea got to the European Cup Winners' Cup final in Stockholm and um, it was a midweek game and I said to him, I'm off, I won't be won't be in next week. And he said, all right, I'll have, I'll, you know, I'll have a fiddle around the studio. And when I come back, he had stuck a loop in and done and done big love and it was brilliant, you know, fair play to him. And to this day, I still get I still get people coming up, I love that big love and I go, yeah, great. Can you play big love? Yeah, I will do, great record, but it's not mine. 
it's nothing to do with me, all right? <laughs> right, I, I want to talk about um, faith. Yeah. So in 1998, I suppose the clubbing scene, very different from what it is now. You know, the super clubs were kind of in their element. The super that. clubs were in their element and trance was a, was, was a big deal. Yeah. And Progressive House was a big deal. Yeah. And if you wanted to play quality kind of New York house music, it was very hard. There was a, there was a couple of clubs. There was Lazy Dog, which was Ben Watts' club in the Nottingham Arts Centre on a Sunday afternoon. There was a couple of nights at the Cross. One of them was Vertigo, which was an Italian night on a Sunday. And then that was kind of it, really. Bill Brewster was doing a night called Low Life. And I'd done a few parties with Dave Jarvis, who was running Beggar's Banquet Records in Kingston. We'd done a few little parties. Uh, we're still doing a couple of little junior boys' own parties here and there. But it, it was very kind of... There was loads of people out there. I, there's that lot over there. There's lo- that lot over there. But there's nowhere for everyone to go together. And Stuart, Stuart Patterson, Leo Elstob were doing a party called Soul Sonic and they had got some really good American guests in at a time when basically you see the, we were very again it's about being lucky because of the right reasons so we started Faith and automatically we had Boys Own Lot we had Stuart's crowd and Leo's crowd we had Bill's crowd we had the the people who were going to uh, Lazy Dog, we had other people uh, who were maybe, you know, going to the ministry on the house nights. So suddenly we, we could fill a crowd. We also very lucky in the fact that the, the big super clubs didn't want the new DJs coming out of Germany. They didn't want the new, D, you know, the new school coming out of America. So we were able to book very early on people like Dixon, Arme, John Cutler, Dennis Freira, all these guys, and you know, literally paying them five hundred quid, you know, and 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 they were going, this is a fantastic party, this is brilliant, and suddenly the scene kind of opened up. You a few clubs opened up, like the Key in Kings Cross, which was just alongside the the Cross and Bagley's. That opened up. That was brilliant. Plastic People opened up. We had Kerry Chandler play for us at Plastic People. Uh, we did an afters there. Uh, now I couldn't. I couldn't even open up a conversation with Kerry Chandler's agent now about playing. But back then he played, and I think you know a bottle of rum was in his rider as well. You know, and he was there. He played for us at the party, and then he went back to the after party at Plastic People, and played till the last person was standing. There was loads of loads of opportunities opening up, especially in East London. Um, Secret Sundays were doing really well, and a lot of our crowd kind of crossed over. We had a Secret Sundays plan, and then a couple of the guys said we started a fanzine, and a couple of the guys, Jimmy P and Dan Beaumont, said we want to write about this. There's a, there's a pub in, in Vauxhall and they've got this night called Horsemeat Disco. And we're going, what? Horsemeat? What's that? You know, that sounds really sleazy. Yeah, and they goes, no, it's really, it's like really gay, and it's really brilliant, and they just play disco. So we're going to write this article about it. And Dan and Jimmy wrote this article, and it was. Right, right, we've got to get them to DJ. So, like, you know, the, the Horsemeat Disco guys come and play for Faith. I, I don't know what was... what it must, They must have done it for a drink in a, in a cab fare, almost. You know, it was... So we were very lucky, again, at a time when no one really wanted house music. You know, people calling it Dad House. You know, people... You know, very in a very sneering manner, uh, a lot of the people who were, um, who were into kind of trance or tech house, and they were like, oh, it's all just Dad House, all that kind of, like, singing and... Nancy people playing instruments and keyboards you know and, and New York stuff but we had been going to New York for body and soul that had caught everyone's attention again and that was kind of what I think our, in our heads we were we were thinking 
where what we were trying to do is what Bobby Body and Soul was doing in New York, which was kind of playing classics, classic classic disco, classic house, alongside the more left field uh, Knights of the Jaguar and stuff like Equatorial, you know, stuff coming out of Detroit as well. We it was a it was a, it was a kind of classic New York meets left field American stuff. Uh, no one else was doing that, and then and we were very lucky because there was loads of music like that that no one's playing. There was loads of venues that would let us have our would let us get in there and um the djs were at a very reasonable price at the time and so what's the feeling now in terms of winding that up is it just because it's a magic number or um, Um, djs too expensive there's a couple of things really you know our crowd become a community our crowd become family you know they they've gone on to so many of my friends have met their you know long-term partners and wives at faith they've had children the children are now like you know going to secondary school and the crowd's kind of grown up and they've grown up to the point where, you know, your core crowd will come out once in a blue moon. And to attract a whole new crowd, you've then got to book DJs that we maybe we don't like. You've got to book DJs that, you know, the 25-year-old likes. So when now back in the situation where am I, am I going to play a record I don't like because it works? Am I going to book a DJ that I don't like? Because it works financially. And then also, you know, you have the situation of DJ fees, which is a real major factor in anyone trying to put a party on that's under a thousand people, which we've always tried to do. Uh, we did do a few parties that were that were big at Bagley's and that, but we've always preferred the kind of, you know, 200 to 600 capacity parties. And it's just not feasible. You know, it's not feasible. The, the, the fees that agents are demanding and that DJs are demanding now just makes it completely um, completely unfeasible to, to run a regular a regular party I think and do you think that's obviously that's can be negative in terms of a stranglehold that only a few key kind of brands that could have on the scene well there is I mean there is a total stranglehold really yeah. and, and, and and festivals have done that basically yeah. you know you have the big festivals have the same artists on every one of them they're the same like going to the same imagine imagine if you you know if you went to the cinema and you saw the same film. <laughs> with the same actors every month, you know, and every month. But, and, and and this is one of the reasons we've, you know, we've decided to stop as well. It just is what the world is. If kind of, you know, 20-something kids really enjoy going to like a festival once every month rather than clubbing three times a week like we did, then, hey, you know what, that's their bag, right? Yeah. Uh, and that festival will cost them 60 maybe you know 40 60 quid to get into so you can't really expect them to be coming out like we did you know paying five pounds to get in three times a week it's just it's just the way it's the way things are you can uh, rant and rave them but you're just shouting at the wind (laughs) (laughs) and so in terms of um there's a lot of noise around the 30th anniversary the second summer of love um and that's kind of brought out a lot of nostalgia in that sense that people are playing sets from that era and things like that. Do you think that that's a good thing for the scene right now? Do you think it will continue that way in terms of this nostalgia bent or do you think it's just a celebration? Facebook, basically. We're talking about Facebook here, you know, and and how youth culture died and now everything's technology drives everything. You know, 10 years ago when Facebook started, suddenly people started to reconnect with people they hadn't seen in 10, 20 years 
And then that actually started off, you know, it re, it, I have to say, you know, hands up, we did our first boys' own party at Cable about 10 years ago. And that was basically, you know, we, we, you know, we never pr- printed a flyer. We never did anything. It was just pure internet, pure Facebook. We sold 800 tickets in no end of time. It's not sustainable simply because people get older and, and you know, and they get bored. You know, how many times can you hear Alison Limerick? How many times can you hear C.C. Rogers? Personally, I don't play old school sets i like mixing records i like playing records from the 70s 80s 90s 2000s this week all in the same set you know i like playing teddy Pendergrass next to a record by eats everything uh, and, and for me the only link is that i like them right and but for me in, in my head they sound like they go together whether other people kind of agree with that i don't know it, it seems to work and um you know people still book me and no one ever says oh can you not do that though but why not you know i i think a lot of them records really the really the really good old records uh sound like they were made yesterday you know french kiss you know it's it's unbelievable it's yeah. you know um, you, you hear can, that in a club. You can play, yeah. If you went, if you went to Fabric and and you know a twenty five year old DJ played French Kiss, it would be the most amazing record that you heard that night, and and the kids in there would think it's the most amazing record. You know, I I played French. I I don't really play that very much because it's kind of like a bit like yeah we heard it, but I I played that record out. I think I was playing in Italy last year. <clears throat> when it breaks and it goes, it slows down really, and then you know, and then it starts moaning, and the record slows down and it slows up i reckon 90 percent of the crowd thought i was doing that because <laughs> they were all like going wow wow and, and, and like you know and, and and clapping it was like and i felt like saying no no it's not me it's the record you know whereas in in england you know or or the older crowd would just know that's the record and they would react to the record not to looking at the djs if you know wow what's he doing you know yeah He's yeah. really clever. And I, I was kind of putting my hand up as if to say, no, 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 don't <laughs> don't give me any praise for something that's not mine. But I, I, I just, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you listen to, when you go to somewhere in IB for like Glitterbox, you know, they've got that vibe really well, you know, where they play disco and they also play a brand new house record. And, and you know, and, and there's there's a link between everything. You know, there really is. And why not showcase that in one of your yeah. sets? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, but this is, as I say, this is what Body and Soul did. And this is why we got excited at Faith. You know, we even, at, at Faith, we even had one of the original DJs from Crackers, Jules Power, come and play at one of our all-dayers, which was kind of a real honour for us, you know, to have him playing. And um, he sat, sadly died a couple of years ago. But, you know, he was like, for me, he was like one of the best DJs I'd ever heard when I, as I was growing up. A kind of prime example of how DJ culture kind of has, has, has excluded a lot of those DJs. I, I feel quite, one of the things I feel quite sad about is that kids in London who, you know, are DJing and they're, they're out and they're playing a bit of disco. You know, they, they, you could say to them, oh, great record. They, they would say, oh, yes, yeah, a loft classic. Or oh, it's a Paradise Garage classic, and you would say, "Yeah, no, it's a it's a, a Lyceum classic," and they go, "What the Lyceum? Oh, did they play it in London? Yeah, you know, your uncle probably danced to it." Do you know what I mean? You know, and they don't know about they don't know about this. They don't know that you know one of the first people to mix records in the UK, Froggy. You know, he he was an East London DJ. You know, he went to Paradise Garage and kind of, you know, Larry Levan t- taught him how to mix. And uh, you know, he was DJing all over the south of England 
all over East London, had a really big sound system of his own, and he was mixing records at a time when you know people didn't people didn't know about mixing, and he's just you know these guys have forgotten. There's no there's nothing about them. It's like they never happened. It is sad. It is sad when we know about Larry and and Ron, and people talk about you know our, our people go who is the one DJ who you wish you'd ever seen, and they go oh yeah Ron Hardy, and you go. Right, okay, why? And they go, wow, because he was amazing. Well, wh- wh- why didn't you, what about, why did you not say, you know, Froggy? Why did you not say Chris Hill or one of these people who, who played where you could actually just, you know, jump on a tube and go and see? And then, yeah. oh, don't, don't know about him. Yeah, it's not like there were two DJs in the whole world playing this sound. It, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, they, and, and then this whole thing about, oh, I would have loved the Paradise Cries. And I go, well, you never got in. Why not? Because you're white and you're straight. <laughs> you wouldn't have let you in and they go whoa what and you go it was a black club for members and gay men oh oh whoa. and then they get the ump and you go but you could have heard the same records if you had gone to the lacy lady in ilford <laughs> brilliant i mean I, I i'm conscious of the amount of time we're talking i mean i could talk like all day but i know we've got to wrap this up but we're talking about tracks and tunes and obviously we put together a a Spotify playlist based on tracks that like five themes, whatever. And it's always difficult. We've spoken to some DJs on the podcast that are very, um, you know, we don't want to nail you down to one choice in particular for each one of these themes. It's just more around a recommendation for our audience to maybe discover a track that they might not have heard before. And uh, you've been kind enough to kind of give me your choices up front. Kind of wanted to get like a small bit of thought about each one. So in terms of the catalyst, the one track that first for you got you into dance music, you said Cool in the Gang, Hollywood Swinging. Uh, when was the first time you kind of heard that and in what context? Well, we had just left school and we were kind of, you know, into our youth club soul records. And we went on holiday and we were on a holiday. Me and my mates, there was about six of us, a little crew of us from Slough. And we went to stay on a caravan site. Celsi Bill and we were too young to book a caravan so Gary's dad booked the caravan dropped us all down there and then left us there and we went to the club at night there was a like a, a disco called the quarter deck club um, most of the people in the caravan site are in this main hall where they're having whatever fun they do you know it's like Phoenix Nights <laughs> right it's a huge Phoenix Nights hall and then they had this little club called the quarter deck club and we went in there and the guy was playing records you know like similar to what we had heard and there was a little group of girls who had brought some records down with them and they brought an album called Wild and Peaceful by Cool in the Gang which was an import album 1974 and it had Hollywood Swinging on and Jungle Boogie and they give it to this guy to play and they were doing these little dances that we'd never seen before and they were wearing plastic sandals really skinny jeans and cap sleeve t-shirts which were like kind of next level for us so it was like right okay this record is amazing i don't know it it's an import i have to have it uh i've got to buy a pair of them plastic sandals and it was just next level stuff you know it was next level stuff you know you got into calling the gang and then you realized that actually there was another offshoot called the kgs and they had this record out called keep on bumping which was really amazing on this great little seven inch and then once you got that seven inch you had to look at what what else was in that catalogue can you get me what else can you get me you know and they would get you this and it was it was just the one that kind of took us from being I guess youth club kind of soul boys into like yeah yeah this is this music is amazing and the amazing thing about it is like 
most of these acts were jazz groups calling a gang had been around for a decade you know making jazz albums and they just like right we're going to make this kind of funk thing now so it was kind of almost like we felt that it was being made for us I know it sounds silly but it was like you know they're making these records for us you know what I mean this is for, that was you know when people talk about punk that was for me that was my punk funk was my funk was my punk that's the, <laughs> there you go <laughs> there you go funk that's a t-shirt isn't it <laughs> funk was my punk um, and, and and you just felt like you genuinely own that, and then you got then you found out about the fatback band, right? And now we can get a coach to see the fatback band. Yeah. Now we can do this, and it was so that record. That was the one, amazing. And you've heard it sampled so many times in different things. Um, the 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 floor filler. I mean, this is just an unbelievable tune. I absolutely love it. Um, Teddy Pendergrass, You Can't Hide. Yeah, well, I, I brought that album when it came out. I, it was one of the records that I heard when I used to go to Crackers and watch. Basically, I used to go down and watch people dance uh, more than anything. But that was one. And I, I went out and bought that album. And then, basically, when Faith really kicked in, DJ Sneak had done a version, You Can't Hide From Your Bud, right, which was a huge faith anthem so kind of it got redone again and then a couple of years ago frankie knuckles did a remix of it which i think never got released but it's being released on a kind of director's cut lp coming out soon so i've managed to blag a copy of that off of someone so i've been playing the frankie knuckles mix of that of late and it's fantastic and there's and there's a dimitri from paris re-edit mix using all the stems which is absolutely amazing and i love teddy you know i watched that that film about him you know and just knowing that he was a sleazy fucker as well is even better you know <laughs> and that he may have killed his wife had his wife executed yeah i know it's you nuts, know well you know yeah, what a guy <laughs> get ready for teddy <laughs> <laughs> um a sunsetter for you uh you've chosen bobby darren beyond the sea uh, yeah well i tell you what and this is and this is this is not my sunset this is basically i went to hostel de la tour yeah in ib for a couple of years ago and chris coco was djing and just as the sunset he put on Bobby Darren, Beyond the Sea. Now, I absolutely adore that record. You know, my old man, God bless him, even though, you know, as much as he hated the reggae coming through the walls, you know, he had a really good taste in singers. You know, he really liked Bobby Dar- Darren. Bobby Davro, I nearly said <laughs> Bobby Darren. It's a very different record. Yeah, very, it could have been a very different record. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, all that sort of stuff. And it's really only kind of recently since I, I kind of become a bit of a Spotify freak that I've kind of really dug into the, all that, you know, and gone beyond Bobby, Bobby Darren, beyond the sea to... Oh, oh no he made that so anyway he played it just as the sun touched the sea and it was just so magical and I went back there a year later with Sue uh, my sister and my son and Chris just happened to be DJ and I, I went up and I said "Could would you do, Would you play it again And he, for me and he played it and because it was kind of my dad passed away a few years ago and because my sister was I never told her and she started crying and, and it was just the emotions of it all and, and literally as the record went out every Everyone in the restaurant clapped him and one big Spanish bloke stood up and went bravo and I just thought this is so magical amazing <laughs> this is like this is balearic yeah to be able to play Bobby Darren Beyond the Sea as they hit the floor is as balearic as Alfredo playing the theme, theme from Hill Street Blues at 11 o'clock in the morning at Amnesia yeah. it's yeah. just wonderful to be able to do that so as someone else's uh, thing I've stolen but uh, it was it was something that touched me very much it's given me honestly it's given me yeah, goosebumps yeah. thinking about <laughs> that I thought I've got a bit <laughs> yeah, emotional now it's yeah. love, that's amazing 
Um, and well, what what better way? The tearjerker next. Um, sounds of uh, the sound of blackness. The pressure. The Frankie Knuckles. Remix. Yeah. Well, we went to. We were going to New York quite a lot in the early nineties. And we went to New York and Frankie had just made this record. And I think he had he was playing it off of an acetate. And we went to the sound factory and we had gone several other places, Webster Hall, and we had gone around town. We were kind of very, very refreshed. It was about five in the morning. And they, the intro to this record, everyone who knows it, it's got that big grand piano. Dang, and then nothing. And they just plunged, the light man plunged the room into darkness. And it just dung, and it went round, and there was as as the piano then opened up, and the strings come in. They put the uh, put the light onto the mirror ball, and the mirror ball started turning around. And you know, it was the the, the club must have been three thousand people in there. Started stamping their feet on the floor, the wooden floor, and people clapping and hollering. And then the record just kicks off, and it goes like that. And obviously, you know, um, me and Pete got to know Frankie through him really being very supportive of our music and also very, very nice went to us when we met him, you know, in a way that, you know, he he, he doesn't have to be, you know. Um, so we actually played with him at the ministry. We warmed up for him at the ministry two days before he dies. And um, whenever I hear that record now, you know, I, I think of that really, really wonderful kind of moment of him DJing and the way he had worked it into the, the night, you know, he'd been playing music kind of quite hypnotically and it was it didn't just kind of come in with an, another Piano House record, it come in after a kind of half an hour of a very tracky kind of tribally stuff and how he obviously had liaised with the light man and the sound man and, and how it, it was just such a, a perfect moment, just like Bobby Darren was a perfect moment at the perfect time and I, yeah I, I i get quite emotional when i when i play that record and uh i used to play it a really lot and i've and i've stopped playing it now because it's kind of now it's become something that i only want to play at really the right time because i don't want to kind of dilute it I don't want to dilute it. Yeah, yeah. The, I don't want to di- dilute the feeling that it actually gives me. Well, yeah, it's now it's now a special tune that you yeah. know you could only yeah. bring out yeah. for those moments. It's amazing. And so the last tune, it's the end of the night. The crowd are asking for one more. Wham! <laughs> Everything she wants. Yeah, I'm. I you know I what? love that tune. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 the reflex. Yeah. Um. Edit. Yeah. Um. And and I kind of you know I can't. <sighs> I think one of my, one of the problems with with me as a DJ, I think I can be a bit po-faced, a bit kind of serious, you know, like we were just discussing all oh, this. I, I don't want to play it now because it's going to dilute that feeling and it's got to be the right place and there's going to be a right time. And I think I can be a bit too serious and I think I can be a bit too, yeah, po-faced is probably the word. And when I heard that mix, I heard it out and I thought it was so, I really loved it so much. And I was never a kind of Wham or George Michael fan, I must admit, but it was just perfect and I've always got it in my box and it's kind of like there's a right time for that record at the right place i play i did i did last new year's eve i played uh in amsterdam i did a four-hour set uh for shum danny ramplin was playing upstairs in in this big cavernous hall and then there was a room downstairs that held about 400 people and i played there and by the end of the night kind of like the upstairs might have shut and all, all the club owners the club people the runners and come down and the girls had come off the door and all that and there was one more one more and i played that and 
and people were just so happy and it was just it was just really really lovely so I kind of then integrate I've took it along with me to kind of have it ready if it's right yeah you know if if the night's kind of fizzled out a bit and there's people kind of gurning in front of you it's not the right thing you know if the club's ended and it might be three o'clock in the morning rather than six in the morning it's a it's a good one to kind of send people home on so and finally um the the, the final question we always wrap up on is you know you've been in the house scene since its birth and you know you've had a hand in steering it in a way throughout all of its kind of different mutations over the years um looking back as a as a house culture as we are um what what does the term kind of house culture mean to you and what do you think the future kind of holds for the scene in general i i for for me there's always been a, a reality and in my mind, what house culture means. In my mind, house culture is sprung wooden dance floors, people putting a bit of talcum powder down and guys doing house dancing, you know, people turning up at three in the morning with, with their clothes, you know, change of clothes to dance into, you know, someone playing Knights of the Jaguar and then playing a, a, a Kerry Chandler record after that. Mixed gay, straight, black, white. But it's kind of, that's not really the reality of anywhere, really. You know, you know, it might have been, you know, at Shelter and it might have been at the Paradise Cross, but it's kind of like, that's kind of like what you would always love it to be, where you'd like to be. So I think house culture, when, when, pe- when people say about acid house, for me, acid house, the words acid house is not about DJ Pierre playing them records. Acid house is the culture. Acid house is E. Acid house is the dancing. Acid house is friendship. Acid house is the non-violence. It's people being a community. That's acid house. And I think house, you know, house culture is all that. I think as crowds change and you have crowds now influenced more by technology than they were by youth culture, you now have people who are there for the Instagram moment, right? Which I think is probably the saddest thing of it all, is that, you know, and, 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 and DJs may be getting booked because, you know, they look great on Instagram, you know, or maybe that they've got 200,000 followers on Instagram. So, you know, a promoter will say, wow, you know, if only 1% come, you know, I've got 2,000 people in a club. Um, and um, that's kind of, it, it makes me a little bit sad, but then I do realise that I'm an old man and, uh, you know, that isn't for me. That isn't for me. That's for them. Life changes and, you know, th- that for me to sort of complain too much about that would be would, for me to be my dad knocking on the wall, you know, because the reggae is too loud, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to be my dad knocking on the wall, yeah. you know. Amazing. What a, I think that's a perfect place <laughs> to end where we began. It's brilliant. Okay. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. Thank you. That was fun. That was really good. House Culture. I mean, how good was that? I hope you got goosebumps at all the right moments. It was certainly emotional in places. And a huge thanks to Terry for sitting down with us and sharing some of those really personal memories of his. As you heard, this is a guy who has seen and done it all within the scene and where he leads, others often follow. And well done to him for sticking to his musical principles for all this time, even if, as he said himself, it might not have always been for his own benefit. Just to recap, you can find the tracks we discussed on House Culture's Perfect playlist on Spotify. These were Terry's Catalyst, which was Cool and the Gang's Hollywood Swingin', 
his instant floor filler, which was Teddy Pendergrass's You Can't Hide From Yourself, that highly emotional sunsetter, which was Bobby Darren's Beyond the Sea, proving that anything can be Balearic if played in the right context. His tearjerker was the Frankie Knuckles mix of sounds of blackness to pressure. Now you know if you hear Terry play that, it's been a very special night for him. And his delightful choice of last tune was Wham's Everything She Wants. He did mention that it was the reflex revision he prefers, but as you know, if you've listened to any other episodes of this podcast series, reflex revisions aren't available on Spotify, so the 12-inch original will have to do for our playlist. And also, as a little boy's own treat for you, I've chucked on Fire Islands In Your Bones. That was one of the first releases on the Boy's Own Productions record label, and the track that Terry mentioned was inspired by a Tony Humphreys Kiss FM jingle. So I'll say it again, you can check all of these tracks out and more on House Culture's perfect playlist on Spotify. Search for it, follow it, so not only will you not miss out on the choices from our podcast guests, you'll also get a regularly updated selection of beats that cover every facet of dance music. Once again, that's House Culture, perfect playlist on Spotify. Once you're done there, please support us by subscribing, loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, and not forgetting to leave us a review. could always get you a mention on a future episode. This time around, our shout out goes to Dave Jones, promoter of the legendary Time Flies, one of the UK's longest running house music nights. Dave got in touch via Facebook to say that he's been enthralled with all of the episodes so far. He's had a fantastic time reminiscing with me and my guests. Thanks so much, Dave. I'm sure we'll both be reminiscing together on a future episode. Watch this space, people. And if you've got this far into the podcast and still don't know what house culture is all about, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. What better way to celebrate with us than by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally... You can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. House Culture. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.